Hello and welcome to the Hopkins Biotech Podcast. Today we present a special episode we're calling JPM Highlights, where we dive deep into the data being presented by top biotech companies at the illustrious JP Morgan Healthcare Conference. This once yearly conference is the epicenter for biotech deal making and groundbreaking data releases. For updates about upcoming guests, follow us on social media and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm your host, Joe Varielli. We have two guests today on our panel covering companies focused on the development of pharmaceuticals in the immuno-oncology space. Each company represented by our guests participated in this year's annual JP Morgan Healthcare Conference. We're here to get the scoop on updates from the conference and learn about the frontiers of medicine. Our guests are Dr. Robert Ross and Dr. Paul Lammers. Rob is the Chief Executive Officer of Surface Oncology. Surface Oncology's mission is to deliver transformative outcomes for people with cancer by breaking through the frontiers of immuno-oncology research. Before becoming CEO, Rob served as the Chief Medical Officer at Surface. And prior to joining Surface, he led several programs in hematology and oncology at Bluebird Bio, including the anti-BCMA CAR T-cell therapy program. Rob received his MD from Columbia University and has received extensive training in hematology and oncology at top institutions, including the University of California, San Francisco, Dana-Farber, and Mass General Hospital. Dr. Paul Lammers is the Chief Executive Officer at Triumvira Immunologics. Triumvira is leveraging their proprietary T-cell antigen coupling technology to enhance engineered cell therapy to target solid tumors. Paul has a rich background in biotech management, having served as president and CEO at Myrna Therapeutics and chief medical officer and head of U.S. product development for EMD Serono. Paul received his MD from Radboud University in the Netherlands. Rob and Paul, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, you're welcome, Joe. Thanks so much. So for each of you, as I mentioned uh, in the segment JPM Highlights, I wanted to get a sense for uh, what your company uh, was participating in at JPM and just some overall impressions of uh, the immuno-oncology space and and, um, how that was considered at JPM this year. We could start with uh, Dr. Ross. Ah, Thanks, Joe. And you feel free to call me Rob. It's great to be here. Thanks for for having me. So um, it was the first time in several years that we all got back together in San Francisco. Um, So I think, uh, uh, at least for me and for the team, it was certainly great to see uh, old friends and colleagues, people we'd worked with in the past, um, uh, coming together again uh, uh, post-COVID pandemic. Um, Joe, as, as you and your listeners probably know, there are sort of three buckets of activities at J.P. Morgan. One is the actual J.P. Morgan conference, right? So that's the investor conference that J.P. Morgan runs, right? Um, we, and most people who show up actually are not participants in the conference itself. Some are, but 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 most aren't. We were not participants in the conference. We didn't present. Um, uh, we're not banked by JP Morgan. Um, the second bucket is just doing investor relations, right? So meeting with old investors, meeting with new investors, meeting with your banks and analysts and talking about um, what's been going on and what to expect in the upcoming year. And most companies, including ourselves, use it as a way to get folks excited about the upcoming year, right? Um, And then the third bucket of activities are around business development. And the reason JP Morgan is such a hot space for business development 
is because most big pharma and big biotech attend. And for the most part, they bring not only their um, externally facing um, investor relations folks, but they also bring their research and development leaders. So it is an opportune time to get face-to-face with not just the um, uh, uh, the business side of these organizations, but also the research and development leadership. And um, as you and your listeners almost certainly are aware, um, the process of business development, it's not a sort of one meeting, you know, quick date sort of thing. It is a, um, a relationship that you establish over time. You're often coming back with new data, new updates, and generating momentum over time. And JP Morgan is a good place both to meet people you haven't met with before and to provide updates um, around how your programs are progressing. I'm um, certainly at surface, um, and uh, you know I don't want to speak for Paul, but I bet it's the same for him. Um, we envision and have made partnerships a key part of our growth strategy, right? So we have partnered, fully outlicensed two of our programs already. And we have another two programs that are in the clinic, and we're always looking for the appropriate partnership, focusing on what's going to be the best partnership to get those programs to patients, right? And almost certainly that involves um, utilizing the expertise and the resources of a of a bigger partner of a commercial entity. Um, and so uh, in summary, that's, you know, that's uh, uh, JP Morgan is really a critical linchpin of the business development evolution of the company. So, so getting back to your question after that kind of long um, uh, uh, overview, uh, JP Morgan was good. It was great to see folks. The weather was a mess, um, but um, uh, it is what it is. I think a tree fell down um, in the middle of the city at one point. Um, there was a hailstorm. Um, but uh, we had lots of great BD meetings, lots of really good investor meetings, and it was a pleasure to meet with folks. There was no, and Paul, you correct me if you if you saw something differently, but there were no big I. There was no big IO news. There was some broadly in the immune oncology space. Some of the data that folks are waiting for is um, is around the um, Genentech uh, Tigit Phase Three. Mm-hmm. Um, there was at least some thought that they'd release some data at JP Morgan and they didn't, right? So so that that just didn't happen. There was no there while there were some mergers and acquisitions, none really involved novel innovative stuff. It was more commercial consolidation um in different uh in different regions. There was no real IO um uh IO innovation deals that were announced at JP Morgan. Um but that's okay. We still look at it as a um uh important meeting. It was great to get the year kicked off in the right direction and we look forward to a 2023 that that looks a lot better than 2022. Well, awesome, Rob. I mean, you did a fantastic job of highlighting, you know, what JPM is all about. Um, you know, we're a private company. So I did get an invitation, JP Morgan, to attend a conference, but I only went there about three times just to listen into some of our cell therapy, uh, you know, competitors, basically, who gave updates. Uh, it was definitely a lot quieter in the West than it did in, in years before where you used to always have to, you know, try to squeeze yourself down the, you know, the, the stairwells and whatever. Um, and that was certainly not there. I mean, I, I saw that as about 8,000 attendees at JP Morgan this year compared to normally about 15,000 or so. So they're definitely quieter. And as you you're up, you're correct. There was not any really stunning news. Uh, for us, just like for you, uh, Rob, we did about 30 meetings in three days. Uh, the same, you know, combination that just out of meeting with, 
existing investors, potential new investors, you know, a lot of BD meetings. Um, and then, of course, with the bankers and the sell side analysts and, and you name it. So um, it was very productive. Um, we lucked out because we ended up having an own conference room in one of the hotels that we stayed at. So a lot of people came to us because, as you said, the weather was pretty crappy. And um, so, but we still had to go out sometimes and, and weather the storm and the rain, so to say. Um, so it was a, it was a great JP Morgan. People really felt happy or glad to be, you know, face to face again with folks. I mean, look, we live on Zoom each and every day. But sometimes it's just good to meet people face to face and sit across the table from one another. And it's just still different. I mean, I, I think face to face is still different than than Zoom often. Yeah, that's great. I, I, so getting into uh, so, some of the details of Surface and, and Triumvira, um, both companies are specialized in two areas of, of amino oncology that um, really came about uh, fairly recently, you know, within the last 10, 15, 20 years, uh, one of which is antibody immunotherapies uh, and what I guess is considered immune checkpoint blockade. Um, the other is uh, cell therapy. Uh, recent advances in uh, T-cell engineering have allowed for the development of um, new T-cell therapies to tackle cancers. So um, touching on each of those specifically, I'm wondering what you both think are the potential synergies between the approaches and um, where you think immuno-oncology will be in the future with these two approaches um, standing as, as sort of pillars uh, of this space. Yeah, Rob, you want to start? <clears throat> yeah, I'd be I'd be happy to. Um, thanks, Joe. I think, um, uh, so I, so a little of my background before I was at Surface, I was a Bluebird Bio. And so I, um, I led the uh, CAR-T programs there, mm -hmm. the, uh, the BCMA CAR. And so was very involved in the um, uh, in the early cell therapy revolution um, uh, that that's going on now and will continue to go on and bring a lot of benefit to patients. Um, at Surface, our focus has been and remains very much on next gen immuno oncology targets um, that can be accessed with antibody therapy. Um, so all the programs we've brought six programs into the clinic in our eight years of existence. Um, all six of those programs are against novel targets, um, unprecedented targets, targets for which there was not clinical uh, proof of concept, much less anything commercial. Um, and these are all big swings. So all of them involve a very high degree of biologic risk. Here, mm -hmm. differentiating biologic risk around the target and the biology versus technical risk around the approach. So um, for cell and CAR T therapy, um, and again, I don't want to speak for Paul and what they, but what they're doing it um, at, at his company. But but in general, for cell for cell therapy, CAR T therapy, there's there's a lot of technical risk, or there was a lot of technical risk. Um, we decided to take on a lot of biologic risk, and as a trade off, our approach has been a very tried and true you'd say almost vanilla antibody approach, right? So we are we are not a bi-specific or tri-specific company. Um, we don't have our own internal antibody technology. Um, antibodies themselves, antibody development is is very much a commodity right now. So dependent on the target, we we evaluate a whole bunch of different ways of generating antibodies to the target and then basically do internal bake-offs to determine which um, development candidate we're going to move forward. 
Now, we have a lot of antibody expertise in-house as you think about the antibody isotype, for example, and you know, do you care about the tightness of binding or the degree of enzymatic inhibition or so on and so forth. But fundamentally, and you'll see this, different companies think about this differently. And I, I think it's really interesting as you consider a company to, to understand what risks they've decided to take on. For us, it's very much of a biologic risk. Um, and we, because of that, we, uh, we try to maintain a pretty low degree of technical risk in terms of can we make an antibody and is the antibody going to do what it's supposed to do? And for us, the fundamental question is if the antibody does what it's supposed to do, is it going to work, <laughs> right? Is the, is the tumor going to get smaller? Um, and, um, you know, I think there is and remains a huge unmet need for improving the outcomes of checkpoint inhibition. The upside to the current approach to checkpoint inhibition is how universal it can become. So you can give PD anti-PD-1 antibodies in Columbus, Ohio, and you can give them in um, Tehran, and you can give them in Beijing, right? So this is a, it's a very, it's a, uh, it's an approach to treating patients that is, that can be almost universal outside of uh, 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 cost restrictions, right? Um, but not that many patients benefit. So the question is, can you develop other programs, other antibodies that can be used in combination that can improve that, that potential outcome? And I'm happy at some point to go through our different targets, but in general, that's what we're trying to do and trying to um, develop, uh, develop therapies that, are, that can be universal. Um, in the cell therapy space and the T-cell modulation space, these are more bespoke approaches that have huge potential impact. Um, and I also think there's a real potential to combine with antibody therapies as well, but that's gonna very much depend on, uh, depend on the target and mm. depend on what you're trying to do to, to, uh, uh, to either reduce, the, reduce resistance or improve efficacy. So. Yeah. Now, I appreciate Robin to build on that, uh, uh, Joe. Clearly the world of cancer therapy is the world of combination therapy as it is, right? So. Look, so many different combinations, you know, are being tested, have been approved, are being used by oncologists on a daily basis to treat, um, you know, different cancer types. Uh, but obviously, if you have a new modality like for us, we are a cell therapy company focused on solid tumors, which has been one of the uh, the challenges for the CAR T therapies uh, because they've been very effective in lymphoma, leukemias, and multiple myeloma, as, as Rob did at Bluebird. But you know, the solid tumor space is different. Uh, why? Because solid tumors are different than, than, than heme malignancies. Um, but first, we have to, we're in the process of showing monotherapy. We see some very great safety and we see very interesting uh, signs of clinical efficacy in our phase one study so far. And we're going into our phase two part of that study um, in about a quarter, uh, which is very exciting. Uh, but also then, you know, thinking about we also start in the second half of this year, we're starting a combination with Keytruda, right? So with, uh, because obviously, you know, people have thought there's good scientific rationale that by hiring, by adding a, uh, you know, a Keytruda or a Nivolumab for that matter, Obdivo, uh, you might uh, affect that tumor, you know, microenvironment, you know, and make it more susceptible to, um, you know, take some of the breaks off that might, you know, otherwise impede your, um, your, your T cells. Um, so far, luckily, and again, I mean, it's, it's, look, we have amazing preclinical data. We see very, our TAC T cells, as they're known, are very, uh, are deeply penetrated into solid tumors in animals. And we see full 
a full clearance of the tumors each and every time, doesn't matter which target we pick, whether it's HER2 or Claudin, or we also done it for C19 and BCMA. Um, so that, you know, that is in itself makes these TAC T cells really different than, than others, especially the different CAR T cells. But, um, but still, I think that, you know, the proof is in the pudding in the clinic. And I, I would love to, uh, the idea that we're starting with, of course, Merck is interested. And, uh, you know, we, we did that deal with them to provide Ketruda for us for the trial, which is great. Um, so we're excited to see what that might bring. Can we have more longer, you know, duration of response because that really that will be the key in the combination uh so we're going to give the the tech t cells to the patient and then you know we every three weeks after we you know they they will be receiving Ketruda to see to what extent we can extend the duration of response because right now that is for cell therapy one of the biggest hurdles is the persistence or the lack of persistence of response um and also that brings up the whole issue of allergenic versus versus autologous because um, you know, allo has a lot of promises, but the duration or the lack of persistence is a big challenge as an allo right now. Uh, so the duration of response is relatively short. And that's something that uh, we are, therefore, we are happy that we're pursuing both autologous as well as allogeneic uh, tech T cells, because we think that both are, will remain needed as part of the overall armamentarium, you know, in T cell therapy going forward. And in fact, even during JP Morgan, I mean, Ari Beldegum, the former founder of Kite and the founder of Allogene, in an interview said people need to realize that Allo is no replacement for Autologous, right? I mean, so, um, and that it will take still quite a few years before Allo is really, you know, uh, front and center in cell therapy. Um, there's a lot of hurdles. It's not that easy to do. And as I said, the lack of persistence is a challenge, right? So, and and they have shown clearly, for instance, if you take their, their Allogeneic CD19 product, that works for a month in lymphoma and autologous works for five months. So the hematologists have said, look, well, guess where my preference is, right? <laughs> so, and then they say, well, perhaps we can use the allo for fast progressing patients and then switch them over to an autologous. So there's a lot still, there's a lot of research. It's early going, it's exciting therapy. I mean, I love the cell therapy. The, the teeth are amazing drugs. If you think about it, they're amazing cells, uh, what they can do. Um, we are using alpha-beta T-cells for autologous. We're using gamma-delta T-cells for allogeneic. And I think that gamma-delta T-cell is a great cell product for an allo program. Um, but, you know, obviously we hope we, we are in the clinic with our autologous. We bring a second soda for HER2, which is, of course, a well-known target. Uh, we're also bringing our second product, which is a Claudin 18-2 targeted um, tag into the clinic starting second half this year. And we'll have our first allo into the clinic next year. So it's an exciting time. So obviously, it's all about raising the money. It's not the greatest funding environment right now, as Rob very well knows. Uh, but obviously, you know, if you have committed insiders, that helps a lot, you know, which is great. Um, but it's an exciting time. And I, I think that combo will be tested. And as Rob said, even combination with antibody therapies, uh, if you think the world of HER2 between, you know, trastuzumab and pertuzumab and go down the list. I mean, um, you know, I think ultimately people will start testing these combinations to see if there is a better response and or a more durable response. Yeah. yeah, one of so so uh, Paul's point about um, combining PD one with allo or auto uh, uh, T cell modification uh, makes a lot of sense. One one angle that we're watching closely. So one of our lead programs in the clinic is um, uh, targeting T regulatory cells, right? And um, uh, so as as you and your listeners probably know, T regs are um, 
critically important in maintaining a local immunosuppressed uh, tumor microenvironment. Um, we know that if you know if I if you eliminated all of my T regs right now, um, like in a, in some magical way, I would have profound autoimmunity, right? And that's what happens in a mouse if you remove all their T regs. But if you could eliminate T regs just in the context of the local cancer microenvironment, it might be a way to improve anti cancer immunity. Um, and the problem with targeting Tregs in the past has always been that targets on Tregs are also on um, uh, cytotoxic T cells. So mm. you eliminate the Treg, but if you also if you also eliminate the cytotoxic T cell, you know you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. Um, so I'm bringing this up. So we have an antibody um, against a target called CCR8, which seems to be very specific to tumor infiltrating Tregs and is not found in cytotoxic T cells. So that's interesting broadly, mm -hmm. but it's also interesting specifically around cell and gene therapy, because if you try to understand why patients who are treated with, say, a CD19 car, why do they recur? Why does it, why does it not cause CRs in everybody all the time? One of the answers seems to be because when you make the CAR T, you're also inadvertently making a CAR T reg right? So you don't mean to, you don't want to, right? Mm -hmm. But that's what's happening, right? And there is data now showing that when you infuse your CAR T cells, you're also infusing CAR T reg cells. And those CAR T reg cells may be responsible for some of the uh, long-term resistance to therapy. Mm -hmm. So you could imagine trying to eliminate T regs with an antibody when you're giving an auto or allogeneic uh, T cell gene therapy as a way of really improving uh, long-term efficacy. So it's a hypothesis. Who knows if it'll work? We'd love to try to figure out if it's going to work. But in general, it's these sort of, I think, very clever approaches to thinking through um, how to get the most out of the cell and gene therapy by thinking of uh, thinking of these mechanisms of resistance that um, antibody therapy can be super useful for. Yeah, those those are really interesting insights, and I appreciate the discussion on uh, autologous versus allogeneic cell therapies because I'm sure that was um, a, a big deal this year and and almost every year. I JPM, um, mm -hmm. awaiting those proof of concept data. Um, and then, you know, other companies are trying to put together a, a manufacturing process for autologous CAR T's that, uh, you could perform in a week. So, so there are so many approaches going on. Um, I, I want to ask a couple of questions to each of you specifically about, um, so, some more philosophy around your, uh, drug development pipelines. And I'll start with Paul. So uh, a lot of uh, cell therapy companies in the immuno-oncology space um, have a specific technology and, and they uh, decide to use uh, some of the validated targets like CD19, for example, as a proof of concept for their specific mm -hmm. technology and, um, and focusing on liquid tumors because that uh, has been an area of success for CAR T-cell therapy. Um Rather, your company seems to be focusing really on on targeting solid tumors, um, and I'm wondering why you you chose that approach uh, versus the sort of proof of concept in liquid tumors, and you know have have a deeper pipeline with um, some other solid tumor targets. Well, great question, Joe. And to be honest, uh, we have an open IND for a CD19 targeting tech. And in fact, we were ready to start our clinical trial on CD19 lymphoma uh, in January 2019, and then COVID-19 happened, which means we couldn't start the study because every ICU bed in the, in the country and in Canada as well was taken up by COVID patients. So 
we had to pause. We were ready. I mean, look, we even got fast track designation by the FTA for our program because despite Kim Ryan's carta being approved, there's still a high unmet need. So, you know, so we were ready. We're excited. The sites were ready. Everything was done. And then suddenly, boom, we couldn't start. So we had to wait. And then on top of that, we have our, our first anchor investor. So Leaps by Bear Pharma came in and said, guys, look, that would have been a great clinical proof of concept, but we all know CD19 market is extremely crowded. Um, your value proposition as Trainvera is in the solid tumor space where we know CAR-Ts have a tough time. So why don't we just switch direction and put the C19 on ice? We're basically, we're repurposing it now for immune disease. So that's a different thing. But, um, and then focused on HER2 as our first target because we had a lot of preclinical data on HER2. So that's the reason, you know, but obviously, you know, for C19, knowing that there is, and in fact, the hematologists were begging us to bring the C19 tag into the clinic because they said, look, Hey, there is still a high amount need. A lot of patients cannot be treated, but also we we are we are thinking because we haven't hadn't seen any kind of um, um, car-like toxicity in mice at all. And in fact, so far we have no DLTs in patients so far, which is great. So they would say, look, we need a safer CD19 because there's still age restrictions on the use of some of these um, the, the the car CD19s and, and what have you. So um, we put our CD19 as well as our BCMA program on ice. For that reason, that it was, uh, you know, so we really focused, changed focus and made her to our, our our lead program. Yeah, it's interesting how situations outside of oh sure, I mean, your control you gotta can go, really... you got to go with the punches, so to say, right? I mean, yeah. so um, yeah, look, nobody yeah. could have foreseen that COVID nineteen happened, right? Let's be real. So yeah, <laughs> so so for Rob, um, in the antibody immunotherapy space. Um, you, you mentioned going after unprecedented targets. Um, we have targets that have been identified and we've seen tremendous success with PD-1, PD-L1, CTLA-4. Um, and you mentioned the Genentech product targeting TIGIT um, was something that people were looking out for this year at the JPM conference. Um, I'm wondering what your philosophy is for selecting new immunotherapy candidates and uh, validating targets um, in-house. Yeah, so we have the, I think the, good fortune um, uh, of having a very strong scientific advisory board. And that board has been with us since the very beginning and was sort of the the single primary asset of the company when we started in in, in 2014. Um, And that scientific advisory board um, at the very beginning laid out a list of um, five targets that they thought would be the sort of next important targets in immune oncology. And we ended up starting programs on all five. Since then, we have continued to work with that advisory board and brought in new targets. Um, we don't do target discovery ourselves. We do some target validation, but we don't do target discovery. Um, and then we we really lever the scientific advisory board. Um, it is uh, to to um, uh, to pressure test our ideas around um, which targets to go after and how best to go after them. Um, it is very true that in immuno oncology, the non-clinical efficacy data is pretty poorly predictive of what you Mm -hmm. see in the clinic. So it's really, it's, I mean, you can get excited or not excited about any particular target. Um, And moreover, um, uh, it's in immuno-oncology, it is notoriously difficult to identify patient selection biomarkers, right? So the reason precision oncology is such an interesting space from a business perspective is the opportunity to select patients early and therefore get hopefully reproducible response rates very early in drug development. 
Um, in IO, that is much, much harder um, because it's difficult to um, identify patient selection biomarkers. So a big part of our approach is on the translational work. So understanding the molecular epidemiology, understanding um, uh, 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 understanding what is known about the role of the target in the patient in clinics with, say, PD-1-resistant disease. So our lead program, for example, is a cytokine called IL-27, and we have an antibody against that cytokine, which is an unusual approach, right? Anti-cytokine antibodies are used in immunology, but typically not in oncology. Um, but we developed a wide set of translational data demonstrating that in some patients and some tumors, IL-27, the cytokine, is highly upregulated in the context of the tumor microenvironment. And you can even see that in circulation. Um, if you look in circulation, the, the people with the highest levels of circulating IL-27 are women who are pregnant. And then after women who are pregnant, um, it's uh, groups of patients with different types of cancers, including liver cancer and including kidney cancer, which were two of the early tumors we went after. Um, and so then we brought the, brought the program into the clinic and we identified that we had monotherapy activity in lung cancer and in kidney cancer. So, and we're working to identify whether or not we can select patients based on IL-27 expression, either in circulation or within the tumor microenvironment. So Joe, I gave you a very long answer to your question. In short, we leverage our scientific advisory board. We really rely on translational data to understand what patients and tumors to go after and try to identify early ways of selecting patients to help improve the timelines around uh, the development strategy. Yeah, that, that's that's quite interesting. I, I think it lends itself to a question that I'll open up to the both of you um, about the development of companion diagnostics uh, and, and genetic tests to uh, stratify patients um, that, that may respond to a specific treatment. Um, how do you view this in the immuno-oncology field in general? And uh, what sorts of innovations are needed to um, adequately uh, develop these companion diagnostics and, and genetic tests? Well, perhaps I could just start off by saying, look, you know, in the 2000s was the decade of the biomarkers. Everybody was talking about biomarkers day in, day out. And I think people studied about 800 biomarkers in total. It was an amazing number. But at the end of the day, there was about seven or eight that haven't been approved by the FDA as actually, you know, validated biomarkers, right? Yeah, the ELK and EGFR and you name it. So there's not that many. So people got a bit disappointed because, you know, things things can go strange ways. I can tell you my previous company, Myrna Therapeutics, which was a microRNA company, we worked on liver cancer and we had patients with tumor shrunk, but the alpha feta protein went up. Right or other way around, alpha protein went down. You say, "Oh, that's great," but the tumor grew. I'm just like, you know, what do you do with that? So the lack of predicted value, as as Rob mentioned, oftentimes is the biggest challenge. So um, now, in terms of stratification, obviously for us, as an example, we're now targeting her too. So we're looking at one plus, two plus, three plus. So we're looking at how the patients with different types of expression, you know, might respond to the therapy. Um, and the same is going to happen when we start a Claudin 18-2 trial, second half this year, we're going to look at expression levels and to see to what extent you can stratify at the end of the day when you have your data, look at how, you know, individual, perhaps different cohorts, although there might be small cohorts, might respond differently to uh, to your therapy. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think about it as um, having a strong patient selection hypothesis or a weak patient selection hypothesis 
or having no hypothesis, right? You're in one of those three buckets. Um, in immuno-oncology specifically, there is really been a dearth of good, strong patient selection biomarkers outside of microsatellite instability. Microsatellite instability, I would call a, you know, a strong biomarker mm -hmm. hypothesis. Um, it is, you know, it is as close to binary as we see in immuno-oncology. By binary meaning, if it's there, you are incredibly likely to respond. If it's not there, you are incredibly unlikely to respond. That is that is what you see with ALK rearrangements using an ALK inhibitor, right? So that's a binary positive biomarker, right? Outside of that, most of the biomarkers in immuno-oncology are sort of weak biomarker hypotheses that stratify patients based on likelihood of response, but are not binary. Mm -hmm. Moreover, you run into this issue of qualitative biomarkers, right? So why PDL one at 50%? Right? What's magic about fifty percent? Why not forty nine percent? Why not fifty five percent? Well, honestly, I mean, you're a biologist. We're all scientists. Like, there's nothing magic about fifty percent, right? In fact, in fact, you know, if you ask three pathologists to, you know, grade the staining, you're going to get right. a, 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 an error margin that's, you know, significant around fifty percent. Um, and so there, it's about generating enough data to feel comfortable about drawing some sort of arbitrary cut point right? That allows you to hopefully be able to subtly select for patients who are more likely to respond, select against patients who are less likely to respond, or select against patients who are more likely to have toxicity, right? So one of the things that happens in immuno-oncology is people say, why isn't it just like ALK or EGFR, right? And that expectation is unreasonable. These are not binary biomarkers. These are not 100% directly tied to the mechanism of action, right? Mm -hmm. They are somewhat tied, right? But they're going to be qualitative. The cut points we're going to make are going to be somewhat arbitrary. And at the end of the day, you just need more data, more clinical data to come up with how you draw that cut point and then how you design the trial around. It. So, Yeah, that, that's really quite interesting. I'm kind of branching off of that. Um, for each of you, you you have clinical experience. I'm wondering, uh, from the standpoint of say the patient journey, what what does a future with personalized medicine look like to you? Um, you know, in the in the setting of immuno oncology. So, um, from diagnosis to eventual treatment, um, how will medicine become more personalized? In your opinion, we could start with Rob. Uh, I, I was gonna, I was going to see us Paul start. Since, yeah, no, I can start. I, I can start. It's fine. You know, it's very personalized specific. I look at yeah. the end of the day. Autologous cell therapy is almost the most you know ideal personalized yeah. medicine, right? Because you take basically leukopheresis material from a patient, and you, then you send it to your lab. You genetically engineer it to express a vector on the surface. You expand them. You freeze them. You ship it back. They get reinfused, so the patient gets his own cells back. But now they're armed with this vector that recognizes antigen expressed on their own tumor cells. I mean. That's like the ultimate personalized medicine, um, but it's a somewhat simple <laughs> simplification of, of the process and the challenges that you have. Um, look, you know, I think that the other thing is for the future, I mean, obviously, I think that getting back to the diagnostic thing, I mean, cells, you know, looking at tumor DNA, cell-free tumor DNA is something also uh, like the single tera assay and whatever. I think that all these things are important. 
and it will be a lot of research uh, done to further optimize it. I mean, it's all about sensitivity and you know uh, making sure that um, and specificity of these tests. Uh, but I think more and more they will be used and can it be done in such a way that even a you know peripheral you know working oncologist can use it with his or her patients. Um, you know, and instead of being still a very esoteric type of, of, of assay. And of course, we have seen the, you know, the genomic sequencing costs go down tremendously. Um, so I think there will be a lot of progress being made in uh, making sure that we understand that patient's tumor and that patient's uh, body makeup, if you want to call it like this, to try to truly tailor that therapy to that individual. Yeah. Yeah. I, and uh- I 100% agree with that. And in the world of sort of of antibody therapy, antibiotherapy and checkpoint inhibition, the vision, right, is that you're able to take a sample of the patient's tumor and understand for that particular patient and that particular tumor, what are the um, what are the immune suppressive forces that are relevant to that patient? right? Is it lag three? Is it TIGIT? Is it IL-27? Is it some other cytokine? Is it some combination? Is it highly influenced by Tregs? Are Tregs the primary, the primary factor that's causing this lack of anti-tumor immunity, right? So you want to rev up the T-cells on one hand, but on the other hand, you, wanna, you want to inhibit these, um, uh, these local immune suppressive uh, uh, pathways. But each patient and each tumor type is likely to be different. So if you could say for patient X, what they really need is a PD-1 inhibitor plus an IL-27 inhibitor plus a LAG-3 inhibitor. And that's, that is going to fully engage the immune system to attack the tumor. But patient Y, it may be a CTLA-4 inhibitor plus, an IL- plus a CCR8 inhibitor, right? That's what we'd love to be. We are very far from that now. Very, very far, right? But in terms of a vision... You would love to be able to personalize the antibody therapy that's active against the immune system to fit with whatever immunosuppressive pathways are upregulated in that particular tumor type with that particular patient. And I think we'll get there, but um, I also think I'm going to have a job for a long time trying to figure out how. So, well, yeah. and the other thing to to remember, Joe, is I mean, I I find one still one of the most seminal papers in oncology was a study I think was published about six years, seven years ago now by this Norwegian group who, um, because we are, what we do is we, we you know, identify there's a tumor in a patient, we take a biopsy, right? And we anal- analyze that as, as Rob said. What they did instead of a single biopsy of that primary tumor, they took three biopsies of the same tumor and found out that the mutational thing was all over. Yeah. So yeah. if you take a single one and says, well, this is a HER2 positive. Well, that might be HER2 positive in 1% of the tumor, but the other 99% that you didn't biopsy might be something completely different. I mean, that's the challenge, especially in the solid tumor space, where the, the mutational burden you know, may differ a lot. There are cold tumors, hotter tumors, you name it. Um, and how do you best tailor then that therapy to that individual patient and that specific tumor type? It's It's tough. Yeah, I think having a lot of tools at our disposal, it seems like a, a mm-hmm. theme here. Um, and, and you know, having all of these different therapies that could work either alone in combination uh, for clinicians to be able to um, identify the best one and, and choose uh, what would be efficacious in a patient is, is going to be important going forward. Um, switching to 
think more about the investment landscape in immuno oncology. Um, you had mentioned it's you know been a difficult year to raise funds in almost every space in biotech. Um, but I'm wondering, specific to immuno oncology, uh, a, a lot of companies develop platforms. Uh, I, th- I think immuno oncology space lends itself to to that developing a platform for technology. Um, what's the nature of private and public investment in platform companies and IO, and and what benefits do you think the platform um, brings to a company looking for investment? Yeah, so so at Surface, at Surface, <laughs> we don't at Bluebird. Obviously, we were all about a platform at Surface. We we don't really focus on a platform. We really have a have a platform per se. Um, I think it's a uh, when you're starting a company, it's a very interesting uh, uh, a very interesting question of do you try to build around a platform or try to build around multiple products? Our approach has been to our approach has been to take multiple products, get them into the clinic as quickly as possible, and be evaluated from a product based standpoint. That has upside in that you know you're getting clinical data, and um, uh, moreover, you. One of the problems with the platform is you're always in this position of, do I spend money to get the programs in the clinic or do I spend money to make the platform better? Because you can always make the platform better, right? Um, and so how do you, that's, that is a constant tension in a platform company. The upside in a platform company broadly is that when you see some success, um, you uh, this this sort of overarching question of validating the platform becomes really important. And when you see that success, you can say, not only do I get, see, is the program successful, but now my whole platform is much, much more valuable, right? When you have a sort of portfolio or program-based company like we are, that doesn't really happen, right? So we have success of a particular product, that's great, right? But with any new p- product, it doesn't it doesn't really validate anything else in the pipeline. It just validates that one product. So, so these are the uh, these are the types of trade offs. You know, it's interesting. I think um, I don't know, and I'm interested in Paul's opinion right now. You know, investment in in immuno oncology broadly and in biotech broadly has been really difficult. I'm not sure that platform based companies are getting any benefit right now from being a platform. I think everybody's scrambling to to figure this out. Um, uh, but I'd love to hear Paul's opinion because, uh, uh, obviously you come at it both from the private side and in the context of having a robust platform. Yeah, no, I appreciate that, Rob. So, you know, it's interesting. There's some kind of an oscillation phenomenon in our, the world of biotech investment in terms of people like platforms, then they don't like platforms and then platforms come back in. I mean, it's like, we're a bit of an uptake right now. People are platform companies are back in favor. Um, you know, and and as Rob said, I mean, if you validate it for one, you can, you know, apply the platform to another target as well. And that's obviously what we try to do with now with Claude and, and Gucci to see GPC3 in the coming years. Um, you know, but um the challenge more right now in the financing world is that if in the cell therapy world is there has been so many cell therapy companies have been founded and funded. And quite a few of these companies went public and they're not doing great. Right. So um, if we talk to uh, an investment group, they said, look, you know, uh, we, Paul, we love the team. We love the technology and we love you've been doing. However, we already made five investments in cell therapy. And guess what? Not a single one of them has paid off so far. So I cannot go back to a partnership and suggest number six because they they kick me out of the room if I do that, right? So that's, you know, and others say, look, I really like the technology. I like the promise of the technology. 
But once you're in the clinic, it's all about the clinical data. And it's, it's uh, we like to see this set of data. Oh, by the way, we'll have to see the next set of data and then the next set. I mean, it's like they keep pushing it out. Why? Because they love to see progress to de-risk their potential investment. But they like to see progress on somebody else's dime, not on their dime, right? I think that is the, the conundrum that you have as a biotech. If you're still preclinical, there was a few years ago, I mean, preclinical companies went public very successfully, raised a whole lot of money. Now preclinical is out uh, and clinical are, is back in. Um, but the challenge then is you need to get that robust data. So if I have a one-month scan on a patient, they say, I like to see the three-month scan. I said, I appreciate that. I want to see that too. But that is two months from now. That's not two weeks from now, right? I mean, so it's all about, it takes time, you know? I mean, that's the one commodity as a small biopack that you don't have. You don't have a lot of time, right? Because you have a burn. I mean, you know, you need to make sure that you raise money again to get to that next uh, value inflection point, you know, whatever that might be, and hopefully multiple. But, you know, cost, quality, and time are the three critical components in any drug development program. I think we are, obviously, it's it's expensive. Cell therapy is, and, you know, and it takes time to treat patients and to see the results of the therapy, you know. So um, I think that's a bit of the challenge right now in, in, in private financing for cell therapy companies. Yeah. And Rob, to you, um, you talked about your philosophy around partnerships and in partnering out uh, some of your products. Um, have the deal structures in those partnerships changed at all in the last year in a, a difficult um, public investment space, um, maybe geared more towards milestone payments and less towards upfront? Or are the deal structures pretty consistent uh, from a year ago to today? Yeah. So, so our, so as I said before, we've brought uh, six programs into the clinic. Two of those programs we have fully outlicensed, um, uh, and we fully outlicensed them in the sort of peri IND phase. So basically, they were each say three to six months from IND filing, and that's a very common time um, mm -hmm. to outlicense because at that point you're sort of selling the promise, right? Um, you're not in a position where they say, "Well, if I wait two months, I'm going to have clinical data." So they know that you know it's going to be a year until you have real clinical data from those programs. Um, but at the same time, there is all the preclinical promise. Once you're in the clinic, then you get into the hamster wheel that Paul said that everybody wants data. They want a little more data. They want a little more data. And you need to create some sort of competitive environment to get somebody to actually, to get someone to actually bite. Otherwise, they feel very comfortable waiting and letting you generate that data, those data. Um, in terms of the types of deals, it is, um, and I don't know if your listeners will be listeners will be surprised by this or not, but I was surprised by this. Um, biotech right now is cheap, right? Um, from a big pharma and big biotech perspective, but that does not make them less risk averse. So you would say, like, if you really love eggs and eggs are now fifty cents a dozen as opposed to a dollar a dozen, I know eggs are super expensive right now. That you would buy more eggs because you know you can um, uh, you you just it, they're they're cheaper. That's not the way it works with biotech. So um, with biotech and the biotech pharma relationships. So pharma is still looking for the high degree of confidence to move forward with programs, particularly clinical programs, and moreover. Um, with um, people uh, 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 struggling to find investment, farmer is not necessarily jumping in to fill that to fill that hole. Um, the types of deals that we're seeing farmer interested in are more option-based deals. 
And an option-based deal keeps the development of the program off of their P&L, right? But allows them to opt in at a future date for some sort of upfront, right? So the upfront doesn't show up on their P&L, right? So it doesn't show up on their balance sheet, right? Um, and at the same time, you continue to work on the program and they have basically an exclusive right to bring the program in with more de-risking data. Now, these kind of deals were always around. I think you see them more now. Um, and in part because small biotech is saying, well, we need the cash, right, in order to move things forward. So we're more likely to take a deal that maybe we wouldn't have two years ago because we would have been able to, to get that from the public market and we would retain all of our rights. So that's the kind of trade-off on the public side that that you end up you end up having to make. Um, and at the end of the day, you're never you're never looking for the perfect deal. You're just looking for the deal that is the best of the ones that are available at the time, right? And the best of the ones available, maybe no deal at all. That's fine. Um, but it's always important to say not only this deal may or may not be great, but does it have less warts or less flaws than all of our other strategic options? If so, you need to move forward, um, you know, uh, along with the um, the one you hold your nose at the least. You know, I remember, I mean, a lot of folks, uh, especially founding and founding CEOs and, and others are very concerned about dilution. And I remember one of my mentors in the past once told me, he said, Paul, remember, Companies don't go up because of the uh, go go belly up because of dilution. They go belly up because yeah. they run out of cash. It's very simple, you know. As as Joe said, you need to raise the money, so you rather do an option deal, you know, because at the end of the day, you know, look, it 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 costs. You have a burn. You have a monthly burn. We have seventy five employees. Guess what? I mean, there is a monthly burn that's substantial. So you need to make sure that you keep the um, you know the lights on and you keep the signs going and keep the clinical trial going, and that's the key thing. So that's right. Um, you know, you you take it. Um, right now, people are more valuation, you know, uh, sensitive. Um, however, I mean, so you know, we haven't really heard you know much pushback from potential investors about you know our ideas about uh, a Series B that we're trying to raise right now in pre money valuation. Um, given on the post that we came out of our Series A, but um, you know, people are more critical now about the, about those valuations. Um, and they have a lot of things to pick from, knowing that a lot of companies are in a somewhat dire strait when it yeah. comes to their runway. Yeah, yeah. And I and so so I love that point, Paul. I think it's exactly right, Joe, for you and your listeners. Companies, companies don't go belly up because of dilution, right? Mm. And a foolish, a foolish adherence to a foolish fear of dilution is gonna really, oh, really um, be very difficult in this in this environment. But um uh what I was uh and so that's so you have to think that through as you think about what your, what your opportunities are now, and you have to hold your nose at at uh at uh, potential dilution in order to to, to drive things forward. But the optimistic way to look at it is that there are 200 plus or minus public biotech companies that are trying below cash right now. In that 200, there are almost certainly three to four multi-billion dollar drugs in there, right? So there are, there's exciting science, right? There are good products that are going to help patients. And the question is, you know, how do you find those products, right? And how do you how do you move them forward in this environment? But they are there, right? Mm -hmm. And they're there to be found. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and then getting back to what what Rob just said, Joe, about the companies that were trading below 
cash value. Of course, last year were like 220 or something. It was an amazing number. And and the interesting thing is that say for if for pharma having their huge cash reserve, so for eight billion dollars, you can buy up like 50 companies and get 14 billion back in cash that they have in the things. But they don't do it, right? Because they, at the end of the day, they want to be selective and they don't want to deal with the whole, you know, um, like all the drama associated with trying to integrate these companies into their own business. I mean, which is a, as we all know, I mean, you know, merging companies is an acquiring company is tough, you know. So, but it was an interesting concept. You know, you pay eight billion, you get fourteen billion back in cash. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's you know, it was it was a bizarre situation in biotech. Yeah. Yeah. That is bizarre, but I'm, I'm optimistic for 2023. Uh, I, I wanted to close by just touching on uh, the employees and, and the people that work at your respective companies. And I think it's, um, you know, what I gleaned from talking with Paul before the interview, uh, kind of different situations that you're each dealing with surface being based in Cambridge. Uh, I'm sure having a lot of employees uh, in Cambridge in this competitive labor market, uh, where there are so many biotechs. Um, mm-hmm. Triumvira, on the other hand, um, Paul has explained to me, has a more decentralized approach where they want to recruit the best people uh, from all over. And, and so that um, allows them to hire <laughs> from um, you know all over yeah. the US and Canada. I, I'm just wondering if you could each quickly explain your philosophy around hiring and, and how you find the best motivated people to work for your respective companies. You can start with Paul. Okay. No. Well, look. You know, at the end of the day, is and I. I have three uh, adult daughters who are have their own families now, and I used to tell them the most important thing in your professional career is you need to wake up and have fun to jump out of bed and go to work. And if you don't have that, you need to seriously think about doing something else with your life. Um, and what is better to try to you know cure cancer, right? I mean, I think that no doubt Rob's employees feel the same way as, as our employees do. So our R&D team is up in Hamilton, Ontario in a lab, in a lab facility just outside McMaster University where the technology came from. So they are, um, you know, they're, they're young scientists that have bachelor's, master's, PhDs. Um, you know, we attract them not only from the Hamilton region, but also out of Toronto now. And part of the reason is that real estate in Toronto has become unaffordable for these you know scientist level folks so they they're more than happy to move the families outside of Toronto go south a bit and 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 join Triumvira so we have not had any problem even during the pandemic we went from like 16 to 45 you know people in in no time um you know and and the other thing is um the reason that we went more uh so i always say we invented social distancing before it became an issue um was the fact that you know i we moved the headquarters you know i said look i'm not moving to canada i'm staying here in austin texas so we moved the headquarters here but i wanted to start the, the um hit the ground running with the company when we start when i started in january 2018 so i said i want to hire the best people to sell therapy i don't care so much where they live they're all industry experienced professionals so the scientists are up north and are also our process development manufacturing people. We now have our own GP suit in, in South San Francisco, by the way. Um, but then I hired people. We have people from Seattle to Florida, from Boston to San Diego, you know, and it's working well. Yes, ideally you have everybody in one place, which I would love to have, but the circumstances called for this because we all know, and, and Rob can attest to this, if you hire people, the biggest hurdle is the move at the end. People love the job and love the idea and the technology, but sometimes moving the family is a big challenge. You know, it is, you know, I've been to that and Rob, you no doubt have been to this as well. I mean, so 
And you do that because sometimes it's really good for your career to do it, but it's not easy. Um, so, and I said, look, if, if you don't have to be in a lab, um, I don't care if you sit in San Diego or in Boston for that matter, uh, working out of your home office, that's okay. Yeah. It's a, um, I find it really interesting to hear what different CEOs and different companies are doing. And Joe, for your last question, you sort of opened up a, that's a, it's a big complicated answer. And, uh, I want to be respectful for time, you know, surface started pre-pandemic right? As a Cambridge-based, in-office-based company, right? Um, and then with the pandemic, we all had to rethink the way we were doing things. Um, I think if you start a company now, you would think about it very differently. Mm -hmm. If you had a you know company of you know 5,000 employees before the pandemic, then you think about it differently too, right? Um, for a lot of biotechs like ourselves who were building pre-pandemic and then entered the pandemic, we come out of it in sort of trying to catch your footing in terms of what you want your footprint to look like and what you want your philosophy to be. Fundamentally, we believe we do not want to be a virtual company. Fundamentally, we believe that there is a, um, uh, especially in a competitive environment like Cambridge, a office-based culture is critical and having people buy into that is critical. Having said that, 100% agree with Paul that you want to offer flexibility, right? Mm -hmm. And you want to get good people wherever they are. So we have um, we have a uh, we have about sixty employees now, of whom about half of them are either uh, about half of them a little less than half say are um, uh, uh, most of the time in the office. Another third of them are primarily hybrids, so coming to the office one or two days a week, and you know another fifteen percent of them are fully remote. Right. Um, but even with the fully remote folks, we have times every other month where we fly everybody in together and we try to have anchor days to um, really have a, um, a, a thoughtful office based culture, even though not everyone is in the office all the time. And I have a lot of sympathy for um, people who live in Boston who have an hour and a half commute. An hour and a half commute is brutal. Right, it's brutal for your family. It's beautiful, right? So I don't want to make them drive in every day. On the other hand, I don't believe that we can be competitive at retaining people if we're purely virtual. Because if we're purely virtual, then what's the difference between working at Surface and working at one of the other 150 biotechs that are in the general area? Yeah. So, so because of that, um, we have landed on this particular solution. Um, it's working for us. Um, we have been. We've won a number of best of Boston places to work, um, both pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. So we're so we're really proud of that. Um, but it requires a lot of thought from the leadership, from the management team, and um, it's it's definitely very different for different companies. So, well, I really appreciate both of your times uh, for you know, offering insights into the immuno oncology space, present and future, uh, and and uh, I really enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks, Joe. It's hey, been a pleasure. Great to Thanks, connect. Joe. Yeah, okay. good, good catching up, Paul. That's great. Thank you for joining us. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests. And visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our full catalog of episodes. I'm Joe Varielli. Thank you for listening.